take your Bible and look back. If you're new with us, we are expositing from the first epistle of John. And uh, we find ourselves in chapter 3 in verses 4 through 10. Obviously, we won't cover all of that today. Our task is to walk through this, and I would say that this is one of the key sections in all of the book of 1 John. I would say it's one of the key sections in all of the New Testament. It's very precious, very important for us, important for us as we live out our faith as well as we seek to understand and grow. But let me read the text for you. I'll begin at chapter 3, verse 4, that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. May God bless his scripture. Let me have a word of prayer and then we will dive into the text. Father, turn our eyes to the word. What else would we know about you unless it comes from your word? Why else would we gather even this morning unless we were here to hear a word from you? Thank you that you've put your word in this book that we could understand you and understand here the distinguishing marks of a believer. Give us eyes to see a heart to obey, and we commit our time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are examining, just even in the recent weeks, the distinguishing marks of the children of God. In fact, not only the distinguishing marks of the children of God, but what makes a child of God unique, and what are the characteristics of one who's a child of the devil. The argument doesn't just begin in 3-4. It actually begins in the beginning of the book. But if you glance back at 1 John chapter 2, it says there at the end of the chapter, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, it's not what one would claim It's what one would practice. In other words, one can say they know Christ, but that's not what the distinction is. John says in 2.29, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. He begins to identify us there as his children. In verse 2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now. 
It says in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. I think the linchpin of this text here is bound up in chapter 3, verse 10 that we just read, where it says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I mean, the Bible is very clear when we speak here, and I've titled this message, The Evidences of the New Birth. But a believer in the Scripture and in 1 John is one who walks in the light, is one who obeys the Word of God and His commandments, is one in chapter 1 that confesses sin, is one in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that loves the brethren, is one who practices righteousness, that is the child of God. Many years ago now, there was a huge controversy. I don't know if it's any different today, oh, over 25 years maybe later, but John MacArthur, the president of the Master's Seminary, was embroiled in a huge, a huge controversy, I think, within those who were claiming to be evangelical. Not only was it a... a uh, a, a truth that he was giving, but he took on in one of his books, uh, one of the leading seminaries of the day, namely Dallas Seminary. And to counteract some of the doctrine that was going forth, that was teaching what we might call a no lordship position, there was a truth being populated. In fact, there's a whole movement of it. It's called the grace movement. Certainly, we believe in grace. Certainly, we're known as Grace Church of the Valley. All of us would, would just love God's grace, but so much so that the grace movement, in terms of the doctrine of salvation, was basically saying that all it was to become a Christian was an intellectual comprehension of a set of facts of the gospel. And that was it. And if you sought to add anything else to the gospel than the work of Christ and His grace, then you were adding to grace. And so it was a movement that sought to preserve God's grace apart from works. But that's not all the New Testament says of the gospel. And so MacArthur wrote that book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And in it, he defended namely the lordship of Jesus Christ, that when a man or woman trusts Christ and gives their life to Christ, it involves a complete transformation of the individual. He followed that book up 25 years ago when he first wrote it, then five years after that, wrote another book called The Gospel According to the Apostles. So the first one was the, the, you know, the Gospel According to Jesus and the Gospels, and then the second book, and they were landmark books. And as I mentioned, they defended that, that Christ is not only the one who died for our sins, but that in coming to Christ, there is a transformation that takes place. And all those passages in the gospel where he tells us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross. And the, the, the brunt of the scriptural argument ran into the nature of regeneration. And so those books defended that from the scripture. And so here, and it's defending obviously what we've been doing in the epistle of 1 John. 
But according to others, and when I say others, I'm talking about men that stand in religious institutions, seminary professors. What we would deem as so clear is evidently not so clear to them. There are many today who would claim that repentance, and that's where part of the key argument is, that repentance is not necessary for salvation. They would say, would others, that repentance is only a synonym of faith. And as a result of that type of doctrine, repentance does not mean a departure from sin, and it is not even necessary for salvation itself. That's what some would identify as the grace movement. Saving faith in that equation is simply then an intellectual affirmation to the facts of the gospel itself. And if you were to ask someone in that type of thinking to repent, you would actually be requiring a work. And if you required that work to turn from sin, you would dismantle in their thinking salvation by grace. In fact, they would go on to make the argument that the sinner may live in a prolonged state of sin. They would be identified today as the backslidden. Some would identify them today as the carnal, okay? Now, what I'm going to do is give you a list of statements that come from that erroneous viewpoint, and it's going to lead into 1 John. They're from several books, are these statements. They are all quotes and they are produced by seminary faculty, okay? And, and, and I'm not doing this to be uh, polemic, but I want to be able to exposit from 1 John. I'm also aware that some of you might not be aware of some of the arguments that go into this position of no lordship position or what some people are saying. And I want you to know as a pastor, I feel like it's vital that we have an awareness of this. So let me read some of these statements so that you don't think we're just speaking on semantics. These come right out of books that would be contrary to what we read in 1 John 3. One said that repentance is just a synonym for faith. No turning from sin is required for salvation. Is that the gospel you know? Another one said this, faith is a gift of God. These are quotes. But it might not last. A true Christian can completely cease believing and can commit the ongoing great sin of willful unbelief and still be a Christian. End of quote. Another one said this, saving faith is simply being convinced or giving evidence to the truth of the gospel. It is a confidence that Christ can remove guilt and give eternal life. It is not a personal commitment to him. Understand what they're saying? In other words, if you just comprehend Jesus died on the cross, he went into the grave, and he rose on the third day, if you just intellectually affirm that, you're saved. And this person said it's not a personal commitment to him. Here's another statement. Christians, quote, can lapse into a state of permanent spiritual barrenness. 
Christians may fall into lifelong carnality. Born-again people who continuously live like the unsaved. End of quotes. I've met scores of those people. You say, what do you mean, Scott? Well, they walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, signed on the dotted line 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and yet they're clinging to that type of decision when they were a child. John's asking the question from the text here, is that person really saved? Here's what another said, quote, disobedience and prolonged sin are no reason to doubt one's salvation. A believer may utterly forsake Christ and come to the point of not believing. God has guaranteed that he will not disown those who thus abandon the truth. Those who have uh, once believed are secure forever, even if they turn away. I mean, who's really secure? I mean, in that picture, they're secure ever, forever, even if they turn away. Another said, repentance is not essential to the gospel. In no sense is repentance related to salvation. You say, well, Scott, stop there for a second. What would they say if it's not related? They would just call it a second work. They would say, hey, you're just saved by grace. But if you're really committed, and if you really want to become a disciple, then repentance comes in later. But you don't want to add it in there, because if you add it, then you're adding to grace, and repentance then becomes a what? Work. But you're saying, but Scott, what about all those passages where Jesus told people to repent and what? Believe. It's, it's got to be both. Here, here's what another said. True faith can be subverted overthrown, collapse, and even turn into unbelief. Some Christians spend their lives in a barren wasteland of defeat, confusion, and every kind of evil, end of quote. Here's another. Nothing, quote, guarantees that a true Christian will love God. Salvation does not necessarily even place the sinner in a right relationship with God. You say, people are saying this? Oh, it's in every Christian bookstore. Multiple books. And I just want to make you aware of it, and we're going to get to the text, but I thought if I just, I could walk in the text and we'll expose it, but I I need to show you why this is important. Here's another statement. It says, all who claim to Christ by faith as Savior even those involved in serious or prolonged sin should be assured that they belong to God, come what may. I'm like, really? It goes on to say, quote, it is a dangerous and destructive to question the salvation of professing Christians. That's a little frightening. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying, Don't ever cause someone to look in, even though I'm thinking Paul said, examine yourself to see whether you what? You'd be in the faith. Maybe a couple more. New Testament writers never questioned the reality of their readers' faith. Genuine believers, quoting still, might even cease to name the name of Christ and confess Christianity at all. 
And I've read parts of other books that basically say, as long as you intellectually affirm the gospel at one time, you could walk away from that affirmation intellectually and become an atheist and you're still guaranteed salvation. In other words, it makes no difference at all how one may live coming to Christ. Evidently, in this type of packaging, obedience is optional. Repentance is seen to be a second work, and one may lapse into lifelong carnality and still be a Christian. It's hard to believe, but those are statements from some of the leading evangelicals that teach at major seminaries. Now, the question that we're asking is, how do you deal with 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, okay? I mean, how are we to to understand what we just read in those verses. There, there's approaches to it. Okay, let me just throw a couple out just so you understand how some have looked at that. I mean, you're, you're trying to grapple with the statement that, that is erroneous, but what do you do with this scripture? Look at it again in verse 6. That no one who abides in him keeps on what? Sinning. I'm just asking you to read it. It says in 6, no one who keeps on sinning has either what? Seen him or know him. Down, glance down at verse 9. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he is what? Born of God. I mean, what are we dealing with there when you can't keep on sinning in verse 6? And if anyone who does keep on sinning, they neither seen him or know him. And why is it that no one, verse 9, has been born of God, makes a practice of sinning? What does it mean in verse 9 that he cannot keep on sinning? Now, to me, we'll explain it, okay? We're going to explain what the words mean. That's why if you're a guest today, you're like, man, this is a, a bit intense. Well, welcome to Grace Church of the Valley, Okay. <laughs> Because this is what we're always going to be about. Because John wants to be this clear. Look at verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. How so, John? It says, and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his, his brother. And so here, the key is its evidence. Well, what does that evidence look like? Now, just before I... I, you know, walk into the passage. How do you deal with this passage of verse 6, keeps on sinning? I mean, one scholar said that John was exhorting misbehaving Christians to redirect their lives to the Lord and move, if you will, from an immature carnal behavior to true spirituality. And so he's addressing, if you will, misbehaving believers. However, I would say the dichotomy that John presents is not a deeper faith in comparison to a shallow faith. It's rather a saving faith versus a non-saving one. Now, what some have sought to do to clarify this text, is come up with some creative concepts that describe it. I don't want to labor long here. But number one, some would say that what John is dealing with here is perfectionism. 
And we have that going on in the Central Valley. You say, we do? Oh, yeah. There are people, as I've mentioned months ago, who think you could actually arrive at the place of perfection. You can get to the place where you no longer sin. You can get to a holy hop, I call it, in your walk with God, that you no longer battle with the flesh. That's sinless perfectionism. And some would say, that's what John's addressing here. He's addressing here perfectionism, and he's exhorting these people to get to a place where they don't sin at all. Now, my response just briefly would be, of course, that's not right. You say, well, why? Look back at 1 John chapter 1, <laughs> verse 8. We know this. If we say that we have no sin, we, what? Deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is not addressing perfectionism here. In fact, he doesn't want us to sin. Look at 1 John 2, 1, where he says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have a what? An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So John here, number one, is not dealing with perfectionism. Number two, what this passage is not talking about, he is not talking in chapter three about a particular sin. You say, well, what do you mean, Scott, a particular sin? Well, just look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. What, what kind of sin? Some would say it is a particular sin. You say, well, what do you mean a particular sin? Let me show you. Look over at chapter 5, verse 16. And we'll get there in a few months. It says in 5.16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, it says this, there is, a, there is sin that verse 16 says that leads to death. And I, should not, I do not say that one should pray for that. So evidently there's a sin, and we'll get there in a few months, that leads to death. And they say what John is getting at is a particular sin. He's not talking about sin in general. He's talking about a specific focus of sin. Some would actually even say, as you go back to 1 John 3, that this refers to mortal sins. If you've come out of a Catholic doctrine, Catholics teach, teach for serious sins. Those are called mortal sins. And if you commit a mortal sin, you could lose your what? salvation. On the other hand, if it's not a mortal sin, they call it a what? Some of you would know. A venial sin. And those are not quite as serious. But I just say to you, this is nowhere found in the scripture. In fact, we'll have to define in this passage what sin is. In fact, look back at verse 4, just for a word here. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, we've got to define that word, okay? also practices lawlessness. And so he uses two different Greek words, practice of sinning, practice lawlessness is a second word, and he said sin is lawlessness. So I can hardly think that, number one, he's dealing with perfectionism. Number two, I do not think that John is addressing a particular sin. Thirdly, and the final one, I'll just to summarize, others create a separation from our position in Christ, the new nature, okay, from the reality of where we live 
in the old nature. In other words, they would say that the argument here in 1 John is that this is what Christians ought to be. It's what they would say is the old nature in me that sins, not the new nature. But the problem with that view is that it alleviates any personal responsibility by blaming the sin on the old man, and we can't see that in Scripture. Now, you say, well, those views are incorrect. Let me show you the key. The key is in the Word of God, and I think it will come out as we go. Now, as we go, let me say this. I don't want you to misunderstand John, okay? And, and we're going to need some weeks in this so that we can mine out the truth. The key is in the text. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in him, watch this, keeps on sinning. Glance down at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. I think it's very easy to understand that what John is talking about here is the ongoing practice of sin that is both incompatible and impossible to those who are born of God. Now, you have to recognize what I said. The ongoing practice of sin. It is impossible to those who are born of God. Now, do you and I sin? Absolutely. We, we sin, do we not? And therefore, we have to confess our sin. That's in John 1.8. Sometimes I would even say that I sin willfully. Sometimes you sin willfully. That's understand. But the key here is that all these terms that we're going to look at are in the present tense. And what John is saying here is that Christians, somebody who's been born of God, does not habitually sin as a way of life. Okay? John is not talking here about occasional sin that we are to confess with God. Rather, he is addressing people who lived in a habitual pattern and practice of sin for great periods of time. I mean, the ruling principle, and we'll say this more in the weeks to come, within us is opposition to sin. In fact, Paul would say regarding our understanding of sin that according to Romans 6, sin no longer reigns in us. We were given a new heart. We were given a new nature at salvation. And the desire of a believer is to obey God, to love God, to love the brethren, to confess our sin, to walk in the light. That's what John is getting at in 3.6 and 3.9 and 10. Meaning this, that sin in the life of a believer, no longer owns you. Now, it doesn't mean that we're sinless. Because if you deny sin, according to John 1, you are a liar. That we understand. What John is addressing here is an unbroken pattern of sin and unbelief. And what John is saying is this person is not a believer. Anyone who confesses Christ but walks in an unbroken pattern of sin as a lifestyle is not a believer. Now, remember as we come into the context here, the Gnostics and the false teachers had elevated knowledge. And they elevated knowledge so much that they had an utter disregard for holiness. 
And these false teachers taught that behavior doesn't matter, and they were actually downplaying sin. In fact, some actually even claimed to be sinless, and they needed to be corrected, but others were living as though sin did not matter, and John will say it does. Now, what John does all the way back into chapter 2 is set forth the distinguishing marks of the children of God. And why John set these forth is this reason, that he wants you to know those who are his and those who are not. In fact, according to John, okay, he says, look at verse 10, by this it is what? Evidence. In other words, he wants it to be obvious to you. In other words, I don't want you to not wonder and where you stand. John's saying it should be obvious. John's saying it should be evident. In other words, as you look at these distinguishing marks, it should become rather evident where the direction of your heart is going and where the lifestyle of your pattern of living is at. Well, we've already studied the first four distinguishing marks. You can listen to those online. He said the first one was a pattern of abiding. You remember that in verse 28 there he said, little children, abide in him. We begin to look at these distinguishing marks. There's a pattern of abiding in him. And and in other words, you remain with Christ. You dwell with Christ. In other words, put it in our words, I'd say this. One of the, the surest signs of a believer is that man or that woman stays with Christ. That man or woman is remaining with Christ. That man or woman is dwelling with Christ. That man or woman, though, has trials, though has been tried greatly. That man or woman keeps with Christ. That man or woman is still abiding with Christ. In other words, it becomes a distinguishing mark. I I could show the opposite. Anybody who walks from what we're doing today and from one another, you would not want to actually give them assurance. Because one of the signs of assurance is abiding. Secondly, we looked at it there in verse 29, is our practice of righteousness. John said, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices, present tense, righteousness has been born of him. How do you know the distinguishing mark of a believer? That man abides. That man practices righteousness. You say, but but Scott, I know, but my child was an Awana when they were young. And they've grown up and they've become an alcoholic. Or they've grown up and went away. What I'm saying is, these are the distinguishing marks. You do not want to get to the point where you're banking your salvation experience off a decision. John is saying, here's the distinguishing marks. And you say, well, Scott, you're talking about perfection. No, I'm not. I'm talking about the direction of one's life doesn't mean when you abide that you're perfect. It just, in fact, actually, when you have Christ in you, you recognize when you do sin. And then you confess your sin, but you get up and you move forward with him. And it doesn't mean that you're never sinful. At times you are sinful, but you want to be sure, John says, that everyone who practices righteousness doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that the direction of your life is righteousness and holiness. Thirdly, we noted our privilege in God's family that we've been loved by God. 
that we're called children of God. And so we are. And then we left off with our pursuit of purity in 3.3, that everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So one of the distinguishing marks of a man or woman is the pursuit of purity. And the reason why this is so important is you raise your children. These are what the scripture says. This is what the word of God says. There's a pattern of abiding. There's a practice of righteousness. There's a privilege in God's family. There's a pursuit of purity. But you might ask, what, what if though someone fails to live in purity? What about the one not abiding? What about the one not practicing righteousness? What about the one who doesn't live within the sphere of that privilege of God's family? What then? John adds a fifth distinguishing mark here, and we pick up the text. Here's the fifth distinguishing mark of a child of God. They do not practice sin. They do not practice sin. Let's go into the text now, okay? It says there that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins. Now, under this heading, this fifth distinguishing mark, John provides three reasons why believers do not practice a life of continual sin. I think we could get to a couple today. But we do not live in habitual sin because first, practicing sin is contrary to a proper understanding of sin's nature. Okay? Practicing sin, that's subpoint, is contrary to the proper understanding of sin's nature. Look again at the text. It says in verse 4 that everyone who makes a practice of sinning, stop right there. What it's saying here in the language, and it's just what you see it as, I don't mean to say the language, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, literally what it says, everyone doing, doing is the word, everyone doing acts of sin. And I want to make a distinction for you. It's right in the word of God. This is not one act of sin, but rather this is a consistent pattern of sin. This is a man, this is a woman who is practicing sinning. They're doing acts of sin. Now look how John says it. Look down in the word. He says, makes a practice of sinning. He presents two aspects of sin. That first word is is a different word where it says sinning. It's just a general term for sin. Now, if I just ask you what that would be, you would say, well, what what is sin? I think we understand what it is. It's just a deviation um, from God's standard of righteousness. Sin, I think you've heard that before, is a failure to hit the what? The target. God's got a target. It's called obedience. When you sin, you deviate from that target. You fail to hit the target. But it's more than that. Sin is the human will that is hostile to God. It is, in the Scripture, and I don't want to make light of this, a deliberate act of the sinner by choice. It is rebellion against God. That's what sin is. It is a deliberate act. It is rebellion. 
But look what John says, though. He adds to it. He didn't just leave it there. He said, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices what? Lawlessness. And then he said, sin is lawlessness. This is, uh, they're both describing sin. Sin is lawlessness. You could put them together. But I really believe in this context, it's a stronger term. And here, lawlessness is not describing a particular command that is disobeyed. What John is getting at here, it is this. It is an attitude of rebellion against God's supreme authority and against the authority of his word. So that what John is saying is that not only does sin miss the mark of God's standard of righteousness, but that all sin is a clear defiance to God's law. To sin then is to stand in this context with the devil, down at the end of chapter 3, and oppose, if you will, Christ. But make no mistake about it. Sin is active rebellion against God. And lawlessness is an attitude. It's living as if there's no law. It is living as if there is no lawgiver. It is asserting one's will over God's will. And those who live in a practice of sin do not understand the nature and the meaning of sin. I mean, this is so contrary to the heart of a believer because you're looking at with your eyes in 3-4 who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. But back up for the contrast in 2-29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has actually been born of him and that is one who is doing acts of righteousness. I mean, the Gnostics again were indifferent to sin. They would say, oh, it really doesn't matter. I can engage in sin sin, and still live in communion with God. And John rejects that type of thinking. In fact, look again at the text in verse 4. He gives a universal to it, and I don't have all the places to show you this, but he speaks this way many times, even in this context. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. It is a universal truth where there is no exception. In other words, there is not a dual standard of behavior in our ranks. In fact, back up in verse 29, he says there, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness. In verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. Look down in verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. But no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. In other words, nobody is exempt, not even the Gnostics, if you will. Now, before Christ, let me explain this. Because you're getting into the principle here. What's he talking about here when he lays down this this proposition where he says that it's contrary to the proper understanding of sin's nature before Christ, Colossians 1.21, it says you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Paul would say it this way in Romans 8.7, that the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not even subject itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
In other words, he's really getting at this principle of new life. And I think, do you remember when Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never, what? Knew you, depart from me. And then remember what he said? Workers of what? Of iniquity or lawlessness. In other words, it doesn't matter what you profess. It doesn't matter if you say, Lord, Lord. It doesn't matter if you prophesy in his name. It doesn't matter if you cast out demons in his name. It doesn't matter if you do mighty works in his name. Jesus would say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, he's giving these distinguishing marks and he says one of the distinguishing marks of a child of God is they can't practice sin. They can't live in a perpetual pattern of sin. Jesus would say, I never knew you. In fact, in the Old Testament, as we still dig into the definition, lawlessness, and I I don't have time, it was all over the psalm, referred to those who defiantly turned away from God and had become his enemies. I mean, this idea of lawlessness is an attitude of rebellion. It's a defiance. It's a revolt against God because I know some of you are saying, I sin all the time. But but let me ask you, in your heart, do you want to honor the Lord? In your heart, though you do sin, do you not want to sin? I mean, when you, when you view something, does it eat you alive? I had a guy in the last month confess to me that he was, he was viewing pornography and he just felt so, what? Horrible. It ate him alive. One view, one screening, just, just ruined him. So what do I think about that guy? Well, there's a guy who was eaten up because that's why... God didn't save him for that, and he knew it. And he knew it. And he was crushed. And he was grieved. And he was quenched in his spirit. Why? Because the spirit of God is in him. And any man or woman on the opposite comparison who doesn't care about grieving God or quenching God wouldn't even think like this guy. Do you understand? In other words, lawlessness is an absolute defiant turning away from God and becoming an enemy. And what John is saying, if that's your pattern, if that's your practice, if you sin habitually with unbroken fellowship, if you will, then you are a Christian no longer Not that you lose it, but you're not a Christian. John would say they went out from us, they were not really of us. I mean, the heart of a believer here is Romans 6.1. Remember when Paul said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? How did he answer? By no means, or may it never be. Then remember Paul went on to say, how shall we who died to sin still what? live in it. You have a new nature. And so when you come to Christ, you've denied yourself. You've taken up your cross. Your desire, though imperfectly, is to please God. And you have bowed your knee to his lordship. 
Look over just for a moment in Romans chapter six. Let me show you this. This is the heart of a believer. The heart of a believer isn't gonna be lawless because you've been transformed and we'll look at that in the weeks to come. But this is a great section of scripture in Romans chapter six in verse 16 where he says there, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from what? Sin. You're set free from it. You say, but pastor, I struggle with it all the time. Listen, to be set free from sin doesn't mean that you're set free altogether. It means that you've been set free from the reigning power that once lived in you as an unbeliever. That when God Almighty moved into you, when He regenerated your heart, He gave you a new heart. He gave you a new nature. He made you a new creation. He set you free from the reigning power of sin where you had no choice but to disobey. So Paul says, listen, thanks be to God that though you were once a slave of sin, you became obedient from the what? From the hearts. Jesus said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so listen, if you're practicing that, it might be... For you, even this morning, this may be hard news. Look in. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are, according to Romans 6, a slave to God. You obey from the heart. You once hated God, and now you love him. You seek to deny the flesh. You seek to live holy. We are no longer in obligation, Paul would say, to live in the flesh from Romans 8.12. We are now people that are led by the Spirit in Romans 8.15. We cry out in our heart there where it says, Abba, Father, and so we love God. And our pattern is unlike John chapter 3, verse 4. We're like David when he sinned, according to Psalm 51. He hated his sin. I mean, that is a proper view of sin. All of David's sin was before who? God, right? Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in his sight. So listen, let me see if I could summarize. Committing lawlessness is what we were. It is not our position today. We want to love God, though we do it imperfectly. We want to obey God, though it's not perfect. We want to honor Christ. And certainly we do sin, but it's not our practice. And anyone who practices sin is actually not a child of God. And so we do not live in sin first because practicing sin is contrary to a proper understanding of sin's nature. We can't live in it. That's what he saved us out of. But secondly, practicing sin is contrary to uh, not only a proper understanding of sin's nature, but it's contrary to the Savior's purpose. Look, look over in 1 John. Look again. He says there, he says, you know that he appeared to what? Take away sins. And so he's building his argument that we do not practice sin because it's contrary to the very reason that Christ came. John says, look at it in verse 5, you know that he appeared 
And it's not the idea that he was created, but at his incarnation, he became, if you will, visible. And he appeared to take away sins. He appeared not just to remove the guilt, not just to remove the punishment, but he came for the very sins that we've committed. Do you remember when John the Baptist laid hold of Christ and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sins of the world. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, that he appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In other words, Christ died to make you holy, not provide you an excuse to live in sin. So to practice sin is utterly contrary to the saving purpose of Jesus Christ. Now, it says there in verse 5 that he appeared to take away sins, and he did that, of course, on the cross. First Peter 2.24, it says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. But I like what it says, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Corinthians in 6.11, when Paul began to talk about our position in Christ, and he said, such were some of you, past tense, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when he came, he came to not only remove that status of guilt and not only remove your punishment, but he came to make you holy. In fact, we were looking at that this morning in our membership class, that just as God chose us in him before the what? The foundation of the world that we should be what? Holy and blameless. He saved you to be holy. He appeared to, be, to make you holy. He appeared that you would become in a renovation, ever becoming more like Jesus Christ, ever becoming and walking and talking more like Christ. He did not save you to leave you in your sin. In fact, I'm thinking of Paul and Titus when he said the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That he gave himself to redeem us from every lawlessness or from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So the very one who came to take away sin is in opposition to sin. And look what the text says in 3.5. It's an amazing statement. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no, what? Sin. And we know that. There's no sin in Christ. Remember, writer Hebrews said, we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without, what? Sin. He has no sin. Hebrews 7.26 said, We have such a high priest who is holy, who is innocent, who is unstained, who is separated from sinners. I mean, this is the testimony of Scripture. Peter, talking about Christ and talking about his death, said that we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And he said, like a lamb without what? Blemish or spot. Christ was sinless. It says in 1 Peter 2.22 that he committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his, what? His mouth. 
the implication is this, Grace Church. If God's son was totally free from sin, then God's children should have nothing to do with persistent, ongoing sin. Listen, you know that if he is righteous, you may be sure, John said, that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And if Christ came to remove sin and himself was sinless, then those who have been born again cannot continue in a pattern of sin. It's not only contrary to a true understanding of sin's nature, but it's contrary to the purpose of Christ's coming. Now, let me clarify this. This is not what Paul's talking about in the battle of Romans 7. The very thing that I want to do, I find myself what? Not doing. The thing that I hate to do, I find myself doing. I find myself at war right in the inner man. That's not what Paul's talking about. You would recognize with me, that is the battle that we fight with sin all the time, right? That is the tension that we live in every single day. We want to be more like Christ, but our flesh wells up. That's not the argument here in 1 John. John's not talking about people in the battle. John's not talking about people who are wrestling with sin. John's not talking about people who are seeking to still deny themselves, take up the cross. What John's talking about is the man or woman who signed on the dotted line, walked the prayer, and lives a complete pattern of open, rebellious sin contrary to God. That's what John's talking about. He's talking about people that have no desire for Christ. He's talking about people who look back and claim some experience or claim some salvation, but their life is completely opposite of what they professed. He's not talking about the battle in Romans 7. I live in Romans 7 every day, don't you? I live in the battle of my own sin every day. I have to battle my own pride every day. I have to battle the flesh every day. And part of the fact that I'm a believer is I'm in that battle, aren't you? What John's here addressing is people who live in lawlessness, people who live with no love for God, no love for the brethren, no love for righteousness, no love for purity, no love for the things of God, no love to become more holy. These are people who are banking on some kind of decision, divorced from a lifestyle of obedience. And John says, they're not a believer. Because watch this, the distinguishing marks of a believer is abiding. It's a practice of righteousness. It's being in the family of God. It's a pursuit of purity. And everyone who has his eye fixed on him purifies himself. But when you get people who live in continual disobedience, you can't give them assurance. But listen, if that's your heart, I think John wants to write it. He wants you to walk out, if you're in Christ, to know that it's evident. That's why he writes He was writing because these false teachers were circulating in their midst, telling them that it didn't matter how you live. Think about all the quotes that I read at the beginning of our time together. It's actually frightening, isn't it? I'll bring out more to you next week. There's books written on this kind of stuff that's where this ideal of just grace, grace, grace is being packaged. But listen, the grace of God appeared instructing us to deny what? Ungodliness, worldliness, selfish desires. Listen, one of the ways you can know that you are a believer is that you have an ever-increasing desire to live in him and to obey his life and to walk in his holiness and to become more like Jesus Christ. Do you get six just a little bit? And we'll pick it up next week. No one 
who abides in him keeps on what? Sinning. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, right? I want to be clear here. But no one who abides and remains and dwells in Christ keeps on in a practice of ongoing sin. And this is just so important. So what, what is it that gives assurance? These distinguishing marks. You can't keep on sinning. Christ came to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin whatsoever. Then no one who abides in him will not practice sin as a habitual pattern of disobedience. And again, the issue here is keep on sinning. And the one who keeps on sinning, look at verse 6, has either, the one, no one who keeps on sinning has either what? Seen him or known him. Seen him, uh, not physically, seen him with the eye of faith. Or know him personally. I mean, I, I just share this, and I've shared with you a little bit. I've met so many people and I've been a pastor a long time and breaks my heart with parents. Pastor, you know, I, my, my daughter, my son, I, I raised them. They were in Awana. They won the Timothy Award, but they got to the, the age of 18 and they've been gone. And they've been gone for 10 years now. And my son or my daughter is living with somebody or my son or my daughter has become an alcoholic or my son and my daughter has... What do you do with those people? And, and, and this is just so many. So listen, we want to be careful to not give false assurance, right? We want to be careful, what I say, not to pick green fruit from the tree. You want to let it ripen. But listen, I want you to know if it's evident. And if you say, yeah, pastor, I'm not perfect, but I'm still here. I'm still abiding. I'm still remaining. Oh, listen, I don't practice righteousness perfectly, but it's my heart to please him. It's my heart to honor him. It's my heart to raise my family this way. Oh, pastor, I might not be as pure as I want to be, but you know what? I'm confessing my sin. I'm keeping short accounts with God. I'm accountable to another guy or another woman in our church, and I want to live pure. Then listen, those are the evidences. Those are the distinguishing marks of the grace of God in your life. But make no mistake about it. If it's habitual, if it's patterned, if you will, if it's prolonged, and then the question will be, how long is a pattern? (laughs) How long is a practice? Some people think it's a week. I, I actually think it's a lot longer than that. I mean, what does that look like when you talk about someone's lifestyle? Is it a week? Is it a month? Could, could believers get sideways? Oh, sure, believers can get sideways, but they come back, they abide. So we'll pick it up in the weeks to come, but be reading this in the weeks ahead, and we'll continue to study it.